We're back to Neil Haley's show, and I cannot believe it. Army versus Navy again Saturday at Gillette Stadium, uh, twenty twenty three, and I have with me Rich Demarco, the play by play announcer of the Army Black Knights, and Pete Medhurst of the Navy Midshipmen. Hey guys, uh, beat the Army, beat the Army now. Anchors aware as I'll talk about my whole background, my father, and I'm going to go right to the kind of story to Pete. My father graduated from the Navy Academy. He passed away four or five years ago, 1949. He was number two in the Naval Academy in his class. And he pretty much had me grow up being a Navy fan. We pit Navy and Colorado were my teams. And I would go always to the to that tradition, going down to watch Navy play. I remember Napoleon McCallum, all those different stories. It's 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 such a tradition, isn't it? Wouldn't you agree? It, it re- yeah, I mean, it really is. Napoleon McCallum had one of the greatest games uh, in the history of this rivalry at the Rose Bowl. Navy won that game 42-3. Um, Navy achieved this ring right here by beating Pitt 2015 Military Bowl, dominated Aaron Donald uh, in company in that game uh, with Keenan Reynolds. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been, you know, it's just been a joy uh, to be a part of this program and uh, certainly hope uh, you're very proud of your father. I mean, you, you be, you're number two in order of merit at the Naval Academy. You're doing something pretty spectacular uh, considering the best and brightest show up on the doorsteps of both of these incredible institutions. Absolutely. And let's kind of just jump into Rich with, uh, again, the tradition of Army and how they are starting to dominate this game. Why is that, that Army's starting to win more than Navy for years after Navy dominated for probably 13-plus years? I'd probably stop short saying dominate. Army has won five out of the last seven, but it's all been close wins for Army. And I think after the 14-year run by Navy, uh, things were due to shift a little bit at some point. And Jeff Munkin, what he's done, transformational at Army in his 10th year and really going for what would be his sixth win over Navy in those 10 years. So from where Army was to where Jeff Munkin's brought them, a truly night and day. But uh Tough to say domination. I think this is now truly an even-up rivalry like it should be. So, Pete, what do you think made it get even up after so many years that Navy was doing so well in the, the rankings in college football, getting major bowl, pretty good bowl games, things like that? What do you think happened? I mean, I, I think, A, Army hired Jeff Munkin. Uh, Jeff was an assistant at Navy with Paul Johnson, who's one of the uh, great triple-option gurus in the history of the sport. And Jeff brought that triple option offense uh, to West Point. He started getting better players, started going down in the South and grabbing more speed. And that's where Navy for years had really thrived. And Jeff started getting some of those kids to show up at West Point. And by getting better talent, being well coached, uh, they started winning more of these games. So it's a real simple formula. Uh, You got your, first of all, you're getting a great education. This game comes down to Jimmy's and Joe's. You go out and get some Jimmy's and Joe's uh, that can play the game. Uh, then you're going to have a much better chance. Jeff Munkin went and got better talent, coached that talent incredibly well with the great staffs that they've had uh, through the years. And as Rich said, you don't really have a rivalry unless both teams are winning. That's starting to happen now uh, in this rivalry, which I think even ratchets the drama up even more between these two teams because both teams do know and feel they have a chance to win. And I think during the winning streak that Navy had, I think Army hoped that they would win. I'm not sure they had a true conviction that they would win on many of those Saturdays, and the results bore that out. But Jeff Wynn got better talent, and they're a much stronger program now. Now, Rich, uh, the thought process, do you think Army's going to win this uh, on Saturday? 
Oh, of course I do. I think they're <laughs> going to win. I think they'll hit a field goal in the final uh, several uh, several plays of the game. You look, Army's last two seasons have ended on game-winning field goals by two different kickers who are both still on the Army roster. Cole Talley and the Armed Forces Bowl over Missouri back in 2021. And, of course, Quinn Moretzky, double overtime in last year's Army-Navy game in Philadelphia. Now, Pete, how does it feel to be part of this, right, this tradition? How many years have you been covering it? And how, like, just who the who's who that end up showing up at this game and now going to different stadiums that was always played in Philadelphia for so many years, but now going to different stadiums and different things and see the glitz and glamour of this game and every all America's watching. You know, I mean, look, I grew up 25 minutes from the Naval Academy, and since the age of five, all I've wanted to do is be a broadcaster. And the fact that, you know, I am broadcasting Navy's games, I've had handshakes with pre- multiple presidents of the United States, incredible. Uh, world leaders, you know, people who make important Department of Defense decisions, people who knew my name when they came back the next year. I didn't have to reintroduce myself uh, to them. And, you know, for a kid from Southern Anne Arundel County who grew up in the shadows of the Naval Academy, it's kind of overwhelming to me. I, I, I get filled with emotion when I think about the fact that, you know, my color commentator colleagues, Joe Miller, who went to the same high school as I did at Southern High, and Keith Mills went to Brooklyn Park High School in Anne Arundel County. We're Anne Arundel County guys through and through, and we're the broadcast crew for the United States Naval Academy now. And that's that's just, you know, when you, when you think of the enormity of that, uh, and, and Rich and I have talked about this before because we're radio junkies, man. We're radio lifers. And you think about the icons that have broadcasted this game in some way, shape, or form, and to know that, you know, our names are on that list now, uh, it, it's just, it, it's kind of overwhelming when you think about it. Uh, that you're a part of this incredible rivalry and so many people uh, past and obviously that and present and future that will participate in this rivalry and continue to carry the banner uh, for just a tremendous, tremendous football game. And, and I'm glad that, that the people of Boston have seen fit, uh, you know, 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party coming up. Uh, th- this area has been rich in tradition of American history, and now it gets to host this, this incredible game, you know, thanks to the folks at USAA as well with their tremendous sponsorship that have allowed this game to become a business entity. And as I said earlier, this area is going to thrive during this week. The hotels for hours away are packed with people that they would not normally have on the second week uh, in December. So it's turned out to be uh, a real opportunity for growth uh, here this weekend in New England. So let's talk about this really quickly, Pete. Uh, your fav- fondest memory, and then I'm going to go to Rich, of covering this game. Uh, for me, the fondest memory is Malcolm Perry, 2019. Runs for 300 yards. That put him over 2,000 uh, for the season. You think of all the great players that have played in this game, going all the way back uh, you know, to the 30s and the 40s. I mean, there, it's been a who's who of college football. Malcolm Perry had one of the greatest days in the history of college football and arguably the greatest day in the history of this rivalry. And being able to describe that excitement uh, to the people as he was doing that, uh, that's something that uh, I'll remember for a long, long time. How about you, Rich? uh, 2016, Army broke the streak. Uh, Ahmad Bradshaw scoring what was the game-winning touchdown. The cadets storming the field. There will not be, I'm going to go out on a limb, there will not be anything that could possibly top that because there will never be a 14-game run by either team. It's so remote, the chances of that happening, and Army breaking the streak the way they did it. That is number one and, and going to be number one for a long time. All right, and so, Rich, how many years have you been covering this? This is my 20th Army-Navy game. 
Wow. And how about you, Pete? Uh, this is my 26th year with Navy Athletics and uh, my 11th now as the full-time play-by-play man. Before that, I was the sideline guy. So I've got 16 of these as a radio broadcaster under my belt. Well, that's fantastic. So when you think, I think about specifically this game and everything, who we already, Rich gave his prediction. Pete, you're going to say Navy's going to win, right? Yeah, I'm probably not going to say Army by three touchdowns uh, in this game. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's it, the pattern tells us it's going to be a close game. Uh, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, Nathan Kirkwood gets to kick one between the big H out here behind us. Uh, and Navy can come away with a dramatic victory and sing second coming up here on Saturday. And Rich, the winner probably will get a bowl game, right? That's usually how it works. This game. Yeah, neither. Five, or five and six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, neither team uh, will be headed to a bowl game. Bowl bids went out last week, and, oh, and neither had the um, requisite wins. So, hey, this is the bowl game, right? This is the biggest game of the year. Might as well end the season with a game like this. So one team will have the last moment of its season, be euphoria, the other one, disappointment. All right. You're, thanks again for stopping by. Saturday, what time's kickoff? Just after 3 o'clock. All right. Eastern. Tune in. Appreciate it, guys. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dr. Robert Mark's radio show. We can call that and also the climate change um, climate change podcast how are you dr robert marks i know you're excited about our topic today i'm fine i'm actually speaking to you today uh from my uh lab where i I do a lot of of the initial work and and do some of my medical work uh but but i am fine and raring to go uh this topic is going to be called uh, lies of a lifetime i had a lot of positive response from um various viewers and, and podcast listeners about last week's uh, podcast where we linked together the oil shortage scam that occurred in the latter half of the 1970s as a politically motivated thing that ended up with a high inflation, high unemployment, misery index, gas shortages and the like, and linked it to the same nonsense that's going on with climate change. So I wanna review a little bit of lies of a lifetime and expose a few people. All right, let's rock and roll. Let's go. Okay. Okay, this is Dr. Robert Marks, by the way. Uh, I am a retired professor of surgery, actually, but I do a lot of research and uh, keep tabs on on the truth in research. Uh, This is not medical research, but let's talk about some of the lies that you will remember. How about this one? I am no crook. That was Richard Nixon, President Richard Nixon, 1973, in the heart of the Watergate scandal. Now, the fact of the matter is he was a crook. Uh, He knew about the break-in into the Watergate Hotel Democratic National Convention headquarters. He knew about the uh, robberies that were going on, and then he actually covered it up. So indeed, he was a crook. Looking back at historically, uh, one has to wonder why he needed to do that. He was running against George McGovern from Minnesota, who was a very weak candidate, and the polls had him way ahead. So add a little bit of uh, paranoia to that, and and that may be his motivation. Uh, How about the next one? Read my lips, no new taxes. That was the first, George Bush, uh, during his uh, campaign, and actually it was during the Republican National Convention. 
Uh, well, guess what? Uh, nine months later, there were new taxes. He caved into the Democrat majority in the Senate and renewed a couple new taxes that occurred. So there's two that are kind of really up front. Uh, well, let's go to another one. Uh, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. That's an actual quote. Well, Bill, I hate to say this, but, you know, your semen was found on her dress. And unless you're kinkier than I thought, uh, you had sexual relationships with that woman. So um, there's another bold-faced lie. Actually, Bill Clinton, if you remember, was impeached by the House of Representatives, but the Senate did not uh, confirm it and actually convict him. So he escaped that. Um, now, his wife, Hillary Clinton, you could spend a whole hour and a half talking about all of her lies, but I would bring to your attention uh, the fact that uh, she testified that she had no idea how her uh, emails were lost from her BlackBerry. 33,000 more plus emails were lost from her BlackBerry uh, when she was Secretary of State under the Obama administration. It's kind of curious how somebody can have their phone acid washed, taken right from her pants pocket. These these crooks today are, are so clever. They take out your, your phone, acid wash it, and put it right back, and you lose all of your emails. So she was kind of caught in a bull-faced lie among one of many. Um, speaking of the Obama administration, how about uh, if you like your doctor, you can keep them? Well, that was the Affordable Care Act, which was a bit of a lie right from the beginning. But if you like your doctor, you can keep them. Never happened. The Affordable Care Act, and, and I'm a surgeon, and I've dealt with that many times, uh, where patients would come and you're not in their network. People who like our care couldn't renew the care under Obamacare. And I personally took out 4.2 pounds of thyroid cancer out of a man's neck who was bait and switched by the Affordable Care Act, which became the Unaffordable Care Act. He, he bought into it with a low premium on year one. On year two, his premiums were jacked up over $12,000. He couldn't afford it. He let his cancer run rampant in his neck. To our credit, uh, he's alive and well today after a surgery and radiation therapy. Uh, also, if we want to talk about Barack Obama, what about the line in the sand? That he drew this line in the sand, and uh, if uh, uh, the caliphate would ever cross that, that uh, he, they would be attacked. Of course, they crossed it, and they were not attacked. So a, a bit of um, a blowhard, if you will. Now, let, let's move on to maybe a couple people who are not politicians. These previous ones were all politicians. How about Dan Rather? Uh, Dan Rather actually forged a document about the second George Bush uh, National Guard uh, enrollment. That uh, was found out to be a complete forgery. Dan Rather, out of CBS, was dismissed, but went on to still a, a career with uh, other networks and, and invited specials, so to speak. But I thought forgery was a felony. That was an actual forgery. So I guess if you forge a lie about somebody else, it's okay. But if you forge a $20 bill, you go to jail. Um, okay, another person. How about Brian Williams? Does anybody remember him? Uh, he was NBC news correspondent in the Iraq war. Uh, he claimed that he was under heavy fire and suffered a whole lot of shrapnel. 
uh, flying by his helicopter uh, in the Iraq war. Um, well, it turned out that the uh, helicopter pilot and the co-pilot said the famous quote after that, hey, dude, that never happened. <laughs> uh, actually, he was embellishing that. And so instead of admitting to his lie, he said he just misspoke. Well, think about what misspoke is. If he would have said, I'm in a Black Hawk helicopter, and it was actually in an Apache attack helicopter, both our, our helicopters in our, our Army and uh, Air Force uh, resume, uh, that would be misspeaking. But to say that you attack and under enemy fire, um, a bold-faced lie. Uh, now, speaking of that, let's get back to Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton, during the Bosnia affair, claimed that she landed in Bosnia under a hail of bullets as she descended from the plane. Yet news films showed that the hail of bullets was actually a little girl giving her a bouquet of flowers. So you can see how some of these are getting to be pretty obvious. Now let's go further. What about uh, the COVID-19 virus cannot be transmitted human to human? Remember that? That's Anthony Fossey. And guess what? Uh, Antonio Guterres from the World Health Organization backed him up and said the same darn thing. Uh, now, he also in the World Health Organization went on to congratulate China for being so transparent about the COVID-19 outbreak and that it had nothing to do with the Yuhan lamp. Wow, uh, these are getting to be whoppers. Okay. Let's go to another one just for entertainment purposes. Senator Adam Schiff, Democratic senator uh, in our Senate, assured everyone that the Russian collusion was real and there was overwhelming evidence about the Trump campaign colluding with the Russians to rig the election. Well, that's been proven false several times. And even the New York Times and the Washington Post that won the Pulitzer Prize for relieving that or revealing that uh, had to admit that it was false, but they never gave back the Pulitzer Prize. Okay, let's talk about one more. How about Jesse Smollett? Jesse Smollett, as you know, recently was reconvicted of his crime, where he claimed that he was beaten by Trump supporters because of a racial incident. Uh, yet surveillance films show that he injured himself and tried to blame it on white extremists. Uh, shame on him. Now, let's Start relating this a little bit to climate change. Uh, Al Gore's famous quote, too, there will be no ice left in the Arctic uh, by 2015. And yet we know, and I've mentioned this many times on my podcast, that the ice is stable in the Arctic since 1983. It hasn't changed one bit. Al Gore made a prediction. Well, we tend to look at some of these lies are they lying or people wrong? Well, if they are bold-faced lies, like a lot of these, I think you recognize, are shame on them. If they were just wrong, why did they make some prediction that we base policies on? That's just as wrong. And then probably the, the last two I want to uh, mention is that uh, I have never discussed business with my son, Hunter Biden. Well, Overwhelming evidence right now currently says that he discussed it with his uh, son several times, uh, and he had uh, witnesses at the same time where his speaker phone was on while his son was discussing business with oligarchs in the Ukraine and even in Russia. 
uh, come on, uh, please don't expect us to believe it. And then the last quote from old times people pushing, Jimmy Carter, said by 2005, the world had run out of oil. Now we know that that. Now Jimmy Carter was an honest president, probably one of the more honest ones. Uh, he had a lot of other deficiencies as far as leading, but he was honest. So he was wrong. But he didn't change things. Just like El Gore would change things. So where does this all lead to? It leads to us. We as a, a society in the United States have become so accustomed to lies. And right now we've got uh, the, the politicians going at it. And one is claiming the other's a liar. And the other one's saying that this is a lie. Who are you going to believe? The answer is don't believe any of them. At this point, believe what you can see, what you can feel, and what you can touch. So shame on us for accepting these lies over the last 50 years. Shame on us for acting on these lies over the last 50 years. The climate change is the biggest current lie we've got. The climate change agenda has weakened our society, has divided our society, has caused us to lose respect around the world, has caused our economy to be severely impacted also by a misery index, which is currently 8%, uh, which is a little bit too high. So I, I would just end by saying this. When you go to polls to vote, before you do, buy a tank of gas, go to the grocery store, buy your weekly groceries, take a look at the crime rate in your city, take a look at what's going around you, before you decide which lever that you push. Okay. All right, that was again. That, that's great. Again, two places to listen to the show: the Dr. Robert Marks Radio Show, which is available on a bunch of terrestrial radio stations, plus the podcast "Climate Change: The Real Story" is available as well. We appreciate it, Dr. Marks. Great stuff, and look forward to talking again. Okay, you're welcome. We'll sign off. Take care, guys. You know, I started out, I went to Central Catholic High up there. In, uh, oh, well, I went to Central for one year, and then I ended up going to Sarah. So, so I, uh, I played football there for a couple of years, and I was you know, pretty much into the athletics. I ran a little track, and uh, not quite as fast as I was supposed to, but, you know, <laughs> so I, but we had fun. And uh, But then, I, you know, I think around that time, it was probably like 68, 69, when all those great you know, classic albums came out, you know, and that really turned my head for music. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews Live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? You're doing fantastic, Neil. How are you? Fantastic. And you know what? You remember this song, don't you, Greg? Uh, play that funky music. I know you do, for sure. And our guest today is Brian Bassett. And Brian's a uh, guitarist and much, much more. Brian, thanks for stopping by, man. How are you? Great. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So, Greg, you know, you're you like you're really into music, aren't you, Greg? That's one of your things. You, you... I, I love music. You know, I remember listening to Foghat when I was a kid. I used to go visit my grandmother, West Palm Beach, and my my great uncle owned a pool hall that had pinball machines and jukebox. And we used to play Fool for the City, Slow Ride. I mean, it was just all the greatest. Just I just some of the best memories I had. You know, in the 70s, listening to that stuff. It was just amazing. Oh, that's cool to hear. Yeah. When you think about that, did you think when you started out, did you always want to be a musician, Brian? You know, I started out, I went to Central Catholic High up there. In, uh, oh, well, I went to Central for one year, and then I ended up going to Sarah. So, so I, uh, I played football there for a couple of years, and I was, you know, 
pretty much into the athletics. I ran a little track and uh, not quite as fast as I was supposed to, but you know, <laughs> so I, but we had fun. And, uh, but then I, you know, I think around that time, it's probably like 68, 69 when all those great, you know, classic albums came out, you know, and that really turned my head for music. I got a guitar around that time. I think everybody in my neighborhood got a guitar or a drum or something. There was a lot of, you know, basement bands playing Louis Louie and Gloria and, you know, and that was the beginning of it. I, you know, I started taking some lessons and, um, you know, as I, when I got out of high school, club scene in Pittsburgh was unbelievable then. You know, when I moved to Florida some years later, I was so disappointed. I was so spoiled with the Pittsburgh club scene. You know, we were playing five nights a week, you know, four hours a night and, um, you know, pretty much a great place to learn your craft, you know, as far as being a musician. There were so many great bands. Everybody was playing original music, you know, the Iron City House Rockers, you know, with the Joe Shecky and Billy Price and, uh, the, you know, the Silencers, uh, you know, Norm Nardini. I mean, it was just a lot of great music, you know, come in Pittsburgh at that time and, and really through the years, but really in that era. And and clubs had a cover charge, so you could actually make a half-decent living playing in the clubs, you know. So, uh, yeah, I, lo I loved it. And I got bit early on, you know, of course, like a lot of young a lot of guitar players my age, the Ed Sullivan show, you know, really sparked that early interest in music, you know, with all the great bands, British invasion bands that were on the TV. And uh, yeah, that was the beginning of it. And uh, I actually started making money at it and that kept me doing it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, set 1975, 76 was my wild cherry years. And, you know, when I joined the band and we, and really we had a, a big hit record right off the bat. It was uh, unbelievable, really, you know, and, um, uh, uh, Rob Preece was uh, from Scoobinville, Ohio, uh, but we played mostly in the Pittsburgh area, but we're tri-state, you know, we're, we're down to West Virginia, all the way over to Cleveland, and uh, it was a great time uh, for me, and, uh, uh, you know, and really to have that big of a success, you know, well, this is like 50 years later, but, you know, when your first record's a number one record, you go, hey, this recording thing's pretty easy, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but 50 years later, you're trying, still trying to hit the charts, but there you go. <laughs> How many number ones have you had? Just that one, you know. We charted while Cherry charted five songs altogether, but you know, in the in the top one hundred, but only that first one, you know, was the one that really did it for us. And and we were managed by uh, the Belkin Brothers, which were big concert promoters, not unlike the you know the Caesar Engler in Pittsburgh, uh, up in uh, Cleveland was the Belkin Brothers, and they were a national um, agency that you know did concerts and so we were able to get you know with that hit record we opened up for so many great r&b bands just about everybody you know from uh, we did shows on the last jackson five tour the commodores earthland and fire average white band you know the list goes on and on of the acts that we were able to perform with so you know that was for a young musician it was a, a really great time for me wow you know and so you think about the people you met i guess from that that first hit that kind of put you on the map the band did you guys expect that to happen was that like just such a surprise when you thought, it, was a, hey, it was a pretty big surprise i gotta say you know we were playing the clubs of course there's a vinyl era still you know i think cassettes were still the new a new thing then you know but uh we were wanted to get a 45 into the local jukeboxes to jack up our price a couple hundred bucks and uh we went up to Cleveland recording and that's where we cut it up on our own dime. We paid for the session ourselves and uh, just in the hopes of, of, you know, getting a record deal, you know, we didn't have a company at that point and, and to get a single press so we could get something in the local jukeboxes. And, uh, but Carl Midori was a, 
a guy that worked for Sweet City Records based out of Cleveland. They were looking for, you know, funk acts, you know, and we fit the bill. They happened to come into the studio and heard the song. And before you know it, we were on uh, Epic Records, which was you know, Sweet City was a subsidiary of Epic Records. And then the Balkans got us out touring and it, you know, sort of blew up from there. Wow. That's, that's incredible. How I was always curious, like how many takes does it take to get like the, the one that you make the, the final cut that makes it, you know, to the public on like when you're that, doing a that song, I think was the second take. We only did like two or three cuts of it. And uh, cause we were playing it live for some time in the clubs. So we were well rehearsed. And so when we went into the studio, we pretty much just knocked it. I think we knocked it out. I think it took longer to mix the song than it did for us to record it. <laughs> so uh, Ken Hammond was the owner of the studio and, you know, we had tried mixing it for a couple of days and trying all these fancy stuff. And Ken's like, get out of the way. Let me do it. <laughs> Finally, he put it all together in about a half hour. And that was that <laughs> here, you know? So, but um, yeah, we, we went down really quick. We were very well rehearsed when we went into the studio then. So Greg, I have a question for Greg fog hat. Is that, so how did you discover really the, the band, Greg, just listening to music or just like at the, at the carefree billiard hall in West Palm beach, Florida. That was it. <laughs> Right in the jukebox. There you go. That was it. Really? Yeah, so you were visiting right, 70, 75, 76 were big years for Foghat, too. And in fact, we used to follow them around in the arenas. I'd be on the, you know, opening for somebody, Isley Brothers or our average white band tour. And then, but Foghat would be right, you know, the week before us or the week after us. So, and I had played you know, as a cover band in Pittsburgh, you know, I played a lot of Foghat songs, uh, you know, coming up. So, uh, I was real familiar with them. Didn't meet them till you know for till many years later. But um, I was aware of them as well. You know, they were a big band. You know, great songs for the club's band to play. You know, yeah, Backman Turner Overdrive back then. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. For Good sure. Stuff. Yeah. Kind of describe Foghat's music for us. Uh, I'd say English blues, uh, English blues rock. You know, and then they were always called a boogie band because you know they always had. Uh, um, you know, like an up-tempo kind of dance thing. Not really dance, but just sort of rock and roll dance kind of feel. And I think that's because they were, uh, Lonesome Dave and Rod, they were all influenced by John Lee Hooker quite a bit, you know, who had, had the boogie, you know, it was the John Lee Hooker's handle. And uh, and so that kind of music, you know, made its way into it, that, that combined with English blues rock. Okay. Well, very and, cool. Yeah. yeah. That's why the uh, I think so many musicians my age actually learned about American blues artists by delving into the records of the British invasion bands coming over, you know, uh, and, yeah. uh, and uh, John Mayo and you know, and Savoy Brown, Foghat, you know, Led, Led Zeppelin, you know, pretty much every uh, rock band of that era were using blue American blues songs and you know, influences to make their records. and. And when you're looking at it, you're like, hey, who's this, uh, you know, Albert King guy, you know, or who's who's this guy? And you start, you know, B.B. King, you know, Freddie King, all the Kings. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> you know, then as a guitar player, you start, you know, delving into their influences. And so they really fed us back our own history musically. Wow. What, what was your favorite band back in the 70s that you like to listen to? You know, I liked all the, I liked Fleetwood Mac. I was a big Peter yep. Green fan from when he played with John Mayo. I listened to all the John Mayo guitar players. I, that They were my influences, Eric Clapton, all, uh, Peter Green, uh, Mick Taylor. And uh, I was a huge Cream fan when they hit hit it. Um, of course, you know, loved Hendrix. He wasn't as much an influence on me because really I couldn't play like him. So, 
I sort of went more with the blues guys. I think Clapton was probably the biggest influence on me uh, mm -hmm. playing wise in those days. Uh, yeah, so that was it. I just got into the blues rock groove. Uh, Savoy Brown, funny enough, that's where Foghat came from. Three of the members of Savoy Brown became Foghat. Um, but they had some great um, instrumentals that, and just guitar-oriented songs that, as a club band, they were great to play, you know, in the beer halls and all. You could get, do a 20-minute song, you know, and have a lot of guitar soloing and jamming. And so that kind of music was great for the clubs. Now, when I think about specifically enough, how does certain music live on? fog hat music and then also you know going back to play that funky music and all that stuff How, is it crazy when you see new generations listening to your music yeah it's great and I, um you know it's it's all about the song i guess you know and and i think people's memory of what they were doing you know just like you were saying with in the pole hall people's memories of that great time of your life when you're having fun and certain songs are like the soundtrack to your life i always say with play that funky music and you know, we made the wedding circuit you know so you can hardly go you can hardly go to a wedding after party and not hear you know we are family and you know brick house and play that funky music and you know, when yeah. everybody's dancing at the wedding party so you know that's you know that kind of thing keeps your song alive in people's lives like you know i guess and um yeah so it's just nice to be associated with a song that had such you know longevity and and you're playing in a band now do you have a band I do, sure. I've been in uh, the lead guitarist of Foghead for 28 years altogether, uh, starting. And I played with Lonesome Dave. Uh, when I relocated to Florida, I worked in a blues recording studio as a session guitarist and producer engineer for King Snake Records. And uh, for some years there, and I met Lonesome Dave in Orlando, Florida, when he had returned from England and moved there. We became friends and he asked me to start touring with him. And that's when I got into the Foghat family. So that was 89. I played with him from 89 to 92. Wow. Then I joined Molly Hatchet, Southern Rock Band. I played <laughs> with them from 92 to 99. And then I was asked back to uh, Foghat in 2000. And I've been here ever since. Wow. That's great. Greatest projects happening with Foghat. Update us. We have a brand new record coming out. It's going to drop on November 10th. It's called Sonic Mojo. I think it's our 17th uh, studio album we have quite a few live albums too uh one we just released it was called eight days on the road that was came out during the pandemic that's what kept me busy during the 2020 when everybody was off the road doing nothing you know i was in the studio working on that live album i do most of the producing and engineering for all the fog projects you know for the last 20 years um so that's our new thing coming out we're just adding the new songs to the set we have a couple record release parties one in new york one in uh, los angeles uh in november and uh so that's uh, what we're trying to get the word out about that and uh you know i think we have two singles released now one's called driving on and uh one's called a little bit of everything those are actually available as pre-releases and uh, we just hope uh, people get a chance to hear it well that's wow. great in the concerts uh your audience mostly boomers or all uh gens now or it's pretty much all gens you know every, we had some songs uh, well particularly slow ride Foghat was uh one of the first songs you had to play on the guitar hero game when that came out some years ago and and all of a sudden we had these like uh, pre-teens and young teens coming up to our autograph table you know with their plastic guitars from the game and having us yeah. sign them and stuff you know because i think that was the first song you had to get through to move on with the game so all That's of a sudden we have all these new fans and and we do a lot of city festivals a lot of outdoor all-age shows so yeah we see sort of like three generations our original you know fans which are pretty much grandparents now <laughs> and uh, yeah. 
and their kids and who you know, raised got raised up on their parents record collection and now now their kids so you know coming out to the shows wow that's fantastic and i think that when you're talking a record are we talking record or is that how you're saying it like is it <laughs> well actually you know a, a couple of years ago that would just be something i said because it was everything was digital and cd but now vinyl's a, a, a big thing we have uh we're gonna do a pretty big run of vinyl uh, 180 gram purple vinyl you know in, in the full album size so actually saying an album is relevant again <laughs> and then, wow. so it's a, it's become a good gimmick to sell at shows then right yeah That's absolutely you know and it and people were back collecting you know i have my uh, college age daughters i was giving gonna give away my record collection which i have five or six hundred records to my friend that owns a record store my daughter's like no you know we want them <laughs> so I go into my storage locker and dig out my old turntable and my old power amps. And, and now my daughter's room looks like mine did in 1972. <laughs> so I guess, Brian, Disco's <laughs> not dead. Right. Not, getting rid, not getting rid of records, then Disco's not dead either then, right? Yeah. <laughs> hey, people will always dance. I don't care what you call it. <laughs> exactly. All right, Greg has a question he asks every one of our celebrities. Go ahead, Greg, with your question. Yeah, all right, Brian. So this is for me and for my listeners, right? And it's really important to help us all develop from your, what you've benefited from in your career and your success. So Brian, what's the most important thing in life you feel you've ever learned? Uh, be yourself, you know, just um, believe in yourself. I think I taught at college for some time and that's the thing I tried to convey to my students the most is that success is not as far away as you might think. You know, I'm taught at Daytona State College you know, a small town and and you don't have to go, you can go to Nashville, you can go to New York, you can go to LA to chase your dreams if, you know, particularly in the music industry, but everything can be done as long as you believe in yourself, you know, that's it. Um, find your passion, follow it, get some good instruction in the music business, get some good legal advice. <laughs> but that's what I would say is the most important thing is self-confidence and, uh, you know, finding a passion of what you're, as my dad would say, find what you would do for free and then try to figure out how to make a living out of it. And that's so that's a great point that a lot of people are unhappy about. They're not doing something they love. That's a right. great, great, great. You know, when, you get to, when you get to my age, you know, I'm going to be 70 next year. So I've been able to play my guitar my whole life, you know, and there's been up, obviously ups and downs and, you know, and and uh, your financial world. And but uh, when you do something you love and like you said, and you would do it for free, I mean, I my wife you know and my friends say are you ever going to retire and i go well what would i do i get together with my friends and play music that's sort of what i do every day so yeah uh, doing your passion that's that kind of thing is important when when you look back at your life and you enjoyed it and done what you love and you know hopefully created something and and then music you know hopefully i entertained a few people along the way all right well we appreciate it Great information. Best place people can find information on Foghat and pick up the record today. Where can they go? Again, it launches in November. Yep, foghat.com has everything, all your Foghat needs. So, yeah. I, I got to look into these vinyls. It's amazing. We're going into Web 3.0 and certain things. <laughs> we're going back to vinyls. You got your cassette tapes too. You know, I, Greg, are they bringing back cassette tapes? I just found my wrestling tapes, by the way. So that's, stay tuned on that one. So what I about eight tracks? I mean, oh, eight tracks on. too. It's bring eight tracks yeah, back too. We ever find some of those at every concert. Someone will come up with an old eight track. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, appreciate it, guys. 
All right, that was a special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews Live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Take care, guys. We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and I'm excited to welcome to my pro the program my co-host, David Hollenbeck. David, thanks for stopping by. I know you're excited about our guest and introduce our great guest. I mean, just some of the projects he's worked on just blows me away, and some of the connects we I have run into in my career of doing over 14 years of interviews and so many celebrities. He has met some amazing people, and he's a celebrity in myself. For myself, I think consider him that with some of the, the amazing people he's worked with. Go ahead, David, with introducing our guest. Yeah, man, I, I am really excited about this. Arthur Smith, uh, we're going to talk about his upcoming book, Reach Hard Lessons and Learn Truths from a Lifetime in Television. Um, currently, I, you know, and to look at you, Arthur, it, it's hard to believe that you've been in showbiz for 40 years. I mean, <laughs> would you start when you were 10? Oh, thanks for thanks for that. No, you know, I worked for Dick Clark and, and he gave me that special serum, you know, that Dick Clark serum, you know, the old America's oldest living teenager. So uh, I, I don't know. I guess it's good genetics. But but thank you. Thank you. Thank, thanks for saying that. I wow. Mean, Dick Clark. It started with Dick Clark. Holy cow. Go ahead, David, <laughs> your question. But yeah, let's see. Uh, talk about the list of people he knows. But go ahead, David, with your next question. No, I mean, Dick, two, Dick, Dick, Dick got me my green card. So there's a whole story about that. But Dick got me my green card. So uh, and I'm, and, you know, one of the most important mentors of my life. But sorry, I interrupted you. No, I mean, I, I was just going to touch on the 200 plus shows for 50 plus networks. Uh, I mean, you've created some of the longest running unscripted series in history, including Hell's Kitchen, uh, seven time Emmy nominee, American Ninja Warrior. Um, I, I mean, the list goes on and on. And I, I <laughs> I'm just thrilled to be talking to you. Uh, the Titan Games with with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I mean, that's one of uh, Neil's buddies there. So no, he wore my knee pads. I wish he's, <laughs> I, you need to tell him that when I was down south uh, working in in Memphis uh, for when he before he was the Rock. But yeah, go ahead, go, go with your question, Dave. That's funny. <laughs> no, I I wanted to my first question. 
for Arthur is um, who is this book for? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, um, I wrote this book really for a broad audience, to be honest with you. I'm sure there's a sweet spot for people who are interested in pop culture and, and uh, behind the scenes of what's happening in sports and what's happening in entertainment. Um, and yes, it's filled with some great stories, stories that I never told before with Dwayne Johnson and Gordon Ramsay and, and Dick Clark and Simon Cowell and Magic Johnson and Wayne Gretzky. I, there's a lot of people in the book, but, you know, it is a memoir with a purpose. You know, I didn't, you know, take the greatest stories I've ever had or the funniest stories, although I think they're some of the greatest and some of the fun funniest or at least most interesting. But the purpose is, is, is explaining what, what I believe um, is really important. Um, and it's been important in my life is that the power of reach. And that's why the book is called Reach. I believe when you reach, um, that's your chance at achieving your full potential. Um, I believe when you reach, you find out what you're capable of. Sometimes when you reach and you think it's sometimes outside of your grasp, you you actually find out that you can do it. Um, I believe when you reach, you realize the difference between a, a, a pipe dream and what you haven't dared to try just yet. And so every story in the book um, is about some connection to this power of reach, something that I discovered. I was fortunate because I discovered it when I was very young. Um, it may not sound like it right now, but I was the shyest of all kids. I was incredibly shy. So shy, I was the kid my parents worried about. And something happened very early on in my life, and I talk about it in the book, um, when I was nine years old. And it it changed my life. And I was never the same. And I didn't, I was nine years old, so I, I wasn't consciously aware of what was happening. It was all subconscious. But it did lead me on this path. And this path, I mean, I grew up in Montreal. You know, I, there was no connection in the entertainment business. My mother was a housewife. My dad was a manufacturer. So there was no connection to the enter entertainment business. In fact, because I was so shy, television kept me company. Television was my friend. And so I would watch endless hours of television. And I still do. I am a TV-holic. My name is Arthur Smith, and I'm a TV-holic. I can't stop watching it. I love content. I consume it by the by the tons. And you know, all this, um, all this, like I said, played out. And when I look back through my life and I looked at, you know, what was the thing that I can draw from one thing to the next? It was this power of rage. And um, anyhow, that was a really long answer to a very short question. I apologize. No, I love shy it. Kids, we have not shy anymore. Parts. We have to have 16 parts, Arthur, for, for sure. And when you think about specifically the power of reach. I mean, I look at it like the experiences that we have in our lives. Now, I'm 50 years old now. You know, I was a former professional wrestler, former teacher. All the experiences I've had always constantly have tried to strive for more and more opportunities have come through taking chances, through going and developing relationships and looking at things. How would you define people that are not doing what you say in the name, the power of reach? What do you think it is? Is not having the highest expectations for yourself, settling for less, not knowing the possibilities that can be out there for people? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. You know, um, sometimes people overanalyze. I mean, I think, you know, so many of the breaks that I got, especially early on, I have to admit it came out of ignorance. I didn't know how the business worked. I just knew I wanted in. And so some of the things that I did, like my first job at CBC, um, you know, years ago, I grew up in Montreal and I was living in Toronto. I was still still in college, studying TV and film. 
I didn't know how the business worked, but I knew I wanted to work at CBC Sports. I'm a big sports fan. I love television first. Sports is my second love. And I literally camped outside someone's office for five or six hours. I didn't know how it worked. I knew I wanted to see him. I knew I didn't have an appointment. I knew I wouldn't, they wouldn't let me in. And I waited till he came out of the office. And I mean, had I known any better, had I known what I knew years ago, I would have probably never done this, but I was so ignorant that I thought I've got to find a way to meet this guy. And I said, can I just, when he finally came out, I said, can I have 10 minutes of your time? He said, I'll give you five. And the five minutes turned into 90 minutes. And then at the end of it, he goes, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a producer. And he said, well, that's a good lifelong goal. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm ready now. Ignorant. Once again, I am ignorant. And he goes, well, that's not the way it works. You have to work in, you have to be a PA and you have to work in local news and then you have to work your way around. And it was a whole, whole thing. I said, well, how long does that take? And he goes, fast track five years. And so um, when I heard that, I said, well, I'm, I'm not interested ignorant person that I was. And, and that was it. And I said, okay. But a few weeks later, <laughs> I got a phone call from his boss. And I was, I was brought back to Toronto. I actually went to Montreal to see my family. And I went, actually literally turned around the car. I got to Montreal, got this message on my answering machine, and then turned around because I didn't have a cell phone because I'm old. It was way back in the 80s. Anyhow, I turned around, drove back to uh, drove back to Toronto and I had this meeting with all the executives, the head guys at CBC sports, kind of guys that I looked up to because I was in a, you know, dreamed of being a producer like them. And um, they ended up hiring me and they, I was this experiment and I ended up being a producer and I was very young and ended up directing, uh, being the replay director on hockey Night in Canada, which in Canada is everything. And then produced the Los Angeles Olympics when I was 24. And then somehow I ended up as head of the sports division. I was president of CBC Sports. I was 28 years old. And all of this happened because I put myself out there, because I reached. And not only did I reach with, you know, within that first meeting, but continually. And this is this has been the pattern. I believe we make our good fortune. And Neil, you're right. Sometimes, you know, maybe people overthink it and and overanalyze it to the point that they get stuck in neutral. It's and too simple. Too it's simple. They want to look at these experts that say you need to have this in all place. Everything needs to be in place. BS. It's about who you know, going after it and asking and building and using your talents to what's your best your ability. People yeah. overthink things so much. They think they need a specific guru to you know, change things. And I got to follow this prescription plan. You talk to any famous person, and I've talked to you've talked to a ton. I've talked to a ton. It isn't based on a specific prescriptive plan. They came up with it, they went for it, and they kept grinding. And that opportunity came, and then they took that opportunity for another opportunity. It wasn't like you know how these coaches are out there, these business coaches, the other people. You got to have it specifically this plan. If you don't follow this plan, it's not going to work. That's not the case. It's about believing. Yep. And going after it and and doing things that are not like the average everyday person does. Am I right? Am I on the right track in looking at this reach thing? Yeah, I, yes, I, I think you are. I definitely think you are. I mean, I think that you know, um, listen, it just because you want something doesn't make it so. Just because you're reaching for it doesn't make you so. There are lots of stories in the book, and I talk a lot about some of the successes, but I talk about my failures too. But I, I believe everything happens for a reason. I believe the more you try, the luckier you get. And, and I believe um, 
that that like I said, that you don't you don't achieve your full potential unless you reach beyond what you think you can do. And that's happened to me time and time again. I also, you know, believe that, and I, I, I've been blessed because I believe that it's much easier to reach from a strong foundation. And, you know, when you think of, um, you know, and when I talk, when I'm talking about that, I'm really talking about my parents because I had great parents and they, um, they were very supportive and they gave me the confidence and, you know, um, they gave me the confidence to reach. And all through my life, I, even though I lived thousands of miles, my, my parents lived in Canada. I lived in, I've been living in LA for 30 years. You know, we spoke every day and, and I went through, I went through a lot in my career. It was, you know, I was young and I was uh, producing and directing, you know, when I was very young and the pressure was pretty intense and my parents were always there for me. And now it's been my family. My parents are gone. Um, and, um, and listen, uh, you know, I, I think about the analogy is like, you know, think about like when you're standing on top of a solid table and you're trying to change a light bulb, it's much easier to change the light bulb when the table is solid, right? As opposed to a wobbly table that's not secure and you're trying to change the light bulb. And so, you know, it, you know, it doesn't have to be your parents. It, for some people, for me, I was blessed with parents. I had it in my house. So I was already, um, I already had a good base to stand on and, and, um, and for some people like who, who aren't as fortunate, you know, um, it can come in other ways. It can come from friends. It come from siblings. It come from something, but it's very, it is very difficult when your your life away from what you're doing is not stable. There's no question about it. And, and it's not impossible. It's just easier. So, um, I was fortunate to, to be reaching from a strong foundation and it helped me. It helped me tremendously. And, and that's why the book is dedicated to my parents and the book is dedicated to the five women in my life, which is I, I have two older sisters, I have two daughters and my wife, who's amazing. And all of them, um, they keep me grounded and they keep me sane because I'm nuts. I'm crazy. Like, I, I have this restless thing. You know, it's funny, you know, in my producing life, some of my some of the qualities that help me make people crazy outside of my work because I'm OCD. I'm incredibly impatient um, and I'm restless. So at work, it really works well because I believe I believe impatient people get there faster. So so I'm like I'm always always want things faster. You know, outside of work, it's you know it's, I I can I can be challenging. I'm I'm I, I'm a good husband. I'm a good dad, but I'm I'm a little nuts. You know, my wife is the sane one, and she's amazing, and she she. Uh, she puts up with me. Right, so. uh, there's so much to talk about. Go ahead, David, your question. This is the kind of conversation that, you know, you could just have a, a cup of coffee. I come out to LA. I definitely want to hang out one point when I'm in LA. To, sure. to, I'm six foot 10, by the way, former pro wrestler, as I said. So I'm six ten, big guy, you know, and uh, I got stories just like you, Arthur. But go ahead, David, your question. Well, you mentioned this event when you were nine years old. Uh, I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Do you mind sharing that? Is that when your dad brought your first TV home or? No, 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 no. It actually <laughs> happened. Um, it happened on the ice as a true Canadian. I was playing hockey. And like I said, the, we had just moved five miles. We had moved from uh, um, um, five miles. That's That was it. From one suburb to another of Montreal. But for me, it was traumatic. This shy kid moving from the friends that I had into a new neighborhood, and I wouldn't leave the house. I was, I was not, I was not in a good way. 
And my parents didn't know what to do with me. And, and, uh, and I, I felt bad about it. I remember feeling bad about it, but I couldn't, I couldn't shake it. And, but I did play sports and I was, I was a, I was, I, I, I was a defenseman because it was, I, I didn't want to be in the limelight. And, um, and they put me in, they, they, they put me in a hockey league in this new neighborhood. And um, the, the, the coach looked at me and he said, um, we don't need any more defensemen. You're playing center. I said, no, 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 I'm a defenseman. And I was nine years old. So how can I argue with the coach? So I, I, I ended up playing center and um, in my first game, I just survived. And in my second game, a crazy thing happened. I scored the winning goal of the game. And all of a sudden I had friends. All of a sudden I said, well, maybe I should be putting myself out there. And I know it's such a weird thing, but I got to tell you, I mean it sincerely. That changed my life. I went on to become the leading scorer in the league. I don't think I ever scored a goal before that season. I was a defenseman who just did my job. I was one of the leading scorers in the league. And that led me to sports. And, and, and I started to realize, you know what? I kind of like the limelight. I kind of like being in the spotlight. I kind of like all this. And, and all of a sudden confidence happens and confidence such a, is such a big such confidence a big is thing. the huge thing you could literally Arthur it's the bottom line if you're not surrounded with the right people and they bring you down that destroys yes. everything around yes. you and you don't and when you figure that super genius uh one of my mentors DJ Reynolds talked about flow you got to have flow around you if you're not having lots of negativity because you're going to have hard times if you're going to try to strive for greatness you're going to hit that wall. You're going to hit that wall many times. You got to have surround yourself with the right people around you because it's not the normal thing of a day to nine to five job. We're going through things and we can escape. The days are over. When you're trying to reach for greatness, whatever you do, you're going to have those tough times. You're going to have those, those, those moments where you want to give up, but you got to come back, but you got to have the people around you that yeah. believe in you. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and, and, and that's the, the key thing. And I mean, you talk, I'm sure what have you been when you've talked to people that have read the book so far, Arthur, or have had the conversations and, and met with you, what do they say based on why you've written this book and talked, told the story? What are the, your friends, your colleagues, people around you, even yeah. people who have written the books, yeah. have read the book so far? Well, the book's just out. So, okay. you know, it just came out recently. So, but there have been some people who've read it and you know, I love my friends and family and, um, you know, I love their opinions and they all, they all love the book, but, but, but something happened to me and it was the first blessing, um, of writing the book. I was doing the audio, the audio book about a month ago and people have a choice to buy the book or not, right? You know, I'm on a buy it. There's people listening today. They're going to either like what I'm saying or, or, or not. And they're going to have a choice to buy the book. The person who doesn't have a choice but has to hear the book is the audio engineer. He has no choice. He's got to sit there for four days and it's his job. He's got to mix it. He's got to make sure the levels are there. And so for four days, you know, I'm, I met this guy and, you know, there was a, there was a, you know, someone from the publishing company listening, listening in and I'm doing my thing and I'm doing the, reading the whole book four days, seven hours a day, got it done. And I get out of the, the soundstage and right before I leave, he comes up to me and he goes, I, th I think you've changed my life. I think you've changed my life. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I need to push further. I realize that I'm limiting myself. I realize that I haven't reached in my life and listening to you for the last few days has changed me. I swear I got emotional. I gave the guy a hug. I was like, Oh my God. I was like, I was like shaking when he said this to me because 
you know, it's like, it's this technician who, this is what he does. He listens to the books and mixes shows. And, and like he, like I said, he had no choice but to listen to me. So, um, so that got to me. And I'm, I'm, listen, I'm really hoping that the book is entertaining. And I think it is. And I mean, certainly it's, it's got a lot of interesting people and it's, you know, I have this great story with magic.